But then also, what's the purpose of doing it, right? Because everyone has a tourism vision. I'm very much part of that. But maybe that's not the right way to go. Maybe you don't have a vision for tourism. Maybe that vision isn't for tourism. <laughs> maybe it's for something else. And that's where you start, and then you figure out how tourism contributes. Hello and welcome back to Travel Beyond. I'm David Archer, Editorial Manager at Destination Think. I'm recording from Haida Gwaii, the territory of the Haida Nation. On this show, we partner with leading destinations to bring you inspiring solutions to the greatest challenges facing communities and the planet. And today we're heading to Copenhagen in Denmark, where our guest is Senior Jungersted, who brings a keen strategic mind and knowledge of DMOs to this discussion. Senior's experience includes a role as development director at Wonderful Copenhagen, which is the city's destination management organization. During her tenure there, she worked on the strategy that's familiar to many of our listeners called the end of tourism as we know it, and the concept of localhood that came out of that. If you aren't yet familiar with that strategy, I recommend checking out our episode with Mikkel Eru Hansen from Wonderful Copenhagen, or reading the summary blog we published about it and our involvement with it way back in 2017, that's still available at destinationthink.com slash blog. And these days, Senia brings her DMO experience into her work as CEO and founding partner at GroupNow, which is an agency in Copenhagen working on strategy, communication, and policy. Senia and her company also helped facilitate the City Destinations International Conference in Sofia that we've been referencing throughout this series of Europe's travel leaders, though this conversation happened a bit later on in Copenhagen. Today's topics include destination management, what DMOs are really for, and what isn't being said loudly enough or often enough in the travel industry. You'll hear Rodney asking her two times, what conversations are we not having? And I've left both of those questions and answers in because both are quite interesting. And that's one reason I love the long format of podcasts like this. We can take some time to really marinate in the good ideas and deep thinking. So without further ado, let's listen in on Rodney Payne's conversation with Senior Jungersted. I'm Sina Jongestel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of a strategy consultancy called Group Now. What's your favorite place to bike around Copenhagen? I like the um, bridges across the water because they, they have like almost an experience built into them. Uh, some, some are like re go down, so you go really fast, and some are just like artworks in themselves. So that's my favorite is when I can incorporate the bridges. I think what I love about Copenhagen is, and this is a cliche answer, but it is the fact that biking is the most convenient way to get around. And it usually just makes me happy. Like it's the best way to start my day and finish my day. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. If there's one thing I think I learned from here in Amsterdam, in my time there is how awesome biking is. It's just so fun. Yeah. It really is fun. Like it makes your day. Yeah. And, it, and even when it's not great weather, it's, snowing or worse like raining and stormy it still kind of just gives you a great start of the day to to go like fresh air and moving around and the freedom and flexibility of it is great what would the world miss if travel didn't exist i think if travel didn't exist the world would miss understanding and challenge when I reflect on what I missed during COVID, 
I remember telling my business partner and co-founder, you know, I miss being challenged on smells because I know the smells. I, I mean, I've been in Copenhagen for many, many years. I know what everything smells like. I'm not surprised very much in my sort of sensory self, but that's what I missed about traveling is just feeling that challenge of like, hey, oh, what's this? Do I like it? Don't I like it? Where am I? How is this? And what's the smell? And so that's that understanding of a new place. And yeah, I think that's, that's part of what the world would miss if travel wasn't here. Can you tell me a little about your career and your background? What did you used to do before our group now? Before Group Now, I was the development director of Wonderful Copenhagen, so that's the DMO of um, Copenhagen Capital Region. So yeah, and that's actually also where I kind of started my career. Uh, I started there building up our Chinese market efforts. I had been living in China for a couple of years and then came to Copenhagen and hadn't really thought about tourism at that time, but then kind of stumbled into it and got caught up in it. And uh, yeah, so I was with Wonderful Copenhagen for about seven years. and. In the last four years, I was responsible for strategic development, innovation, new projects that would kind of push the DMO and the city forward. And as part of that, we launched the strategy called the End of Tourism and Welcoming a New Era of Localhood, which really was kind of defining for how my four years as development director then developed. <laughs> and what was the reaction to that strategy and what impact has it had? The reactions to the end of tourism as a strategy were uh, interesting because they were actually international before they became local. I think it was actually the first strategy we published in English. I didn't know what it meant to do a strategy, which I think was a good thing at the time. So I was just kind of going with what I thought made sense. And so we published it in English and that meant that the reactions were really international. I think the, the, the idea of localhood resonated in a lot of destinations, they just hadn't really said it themselves yet. And the idea of temporary locals, for example, as well, also really resonated. The reaction from, from like a local audience and from Copenhagen came a little bit later, but the reaction then was also adoption. Like, it, oh, this made sense, but it took a little while because it, I think it was just different. Like, we were used to talking about tourism in terms of like, which international markets do we go for? Or what kind of events do we want to attract? And then this strategy was more of an a filter really on how we wanted to do it, right? So yeah, those were the reactions. Also, as always, lots of discussions. I love thinking about a strategy as a filter and you know, if strategies lead to discussions, that's a great yeah. A great outcome. I think so. What does localhood mean to you? For me, localhood is like something really personal. It's 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 whatever makes you feel like this is a distinct place in the world and I'm part of it in a way. Uh, so to me, localhood is very unflashy everyday experiences. It can also be the smells of a street somewhere where you, you have it when you travel, right? When you're walking around an area and you're thinking, oh, I'm the only tourist here and you're just basically observing local life and how that works. That to me is localhood. But it's probably something different for someone else, which I like. There's no definition in the strategy. And that was, that was the idea. It should be defined collaboratively or individually, yeah. How do you see localhood manifesting in Copenhagen? Copenhagen is a localhood city, right? Because it doesn't actually have a lot of attractions. <laughs> so the localhood is the attraction. Like Copenhagen, when I was in wonderful Copenhagen, we did a huge research project called 10X Copenhagen. 
and we were looking at how the city is used by different groups, like which area do locals go to and which areas do tourists go to. And there was this idea that the inner city would be mostly tourists, but actually the, the locals also go to the inner city. It's a small city, so we hang out in the neighborhoods that are available to hang out in. And so I like that, that, that in a way, all of Copenhagen is local. How does tourism play into the whole environment of Copenhagen? Tourism plays into Copenhagen more and more. It's become a more visible entity or like influence. And you also have areas that are heavily touristic, I would say, especially during like the summer season. COVID also brought tourism up as a more explicit discussion point. You had industry struggling, and that was in the media a lot. And there's also more attention to local reactions or resident reactions to tourism than we had before. At the same time, I think there is a general understanding that because of tourism, we also have globally known experiences like Noma. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to Noma, but it's a really expensive experience. It's a great experience, but it's very expensive. And so I don't think we would be able to support it if it was just the Copenhageners that could go. But the fact that it's there makes a lot of Copenhageners very proud. Uh, and it builds off, you know, local produce or Danish produce. And there's a strong Nordic food culture to it as well, combined with inspiration from all over the world, of course. But I think there is an, a growing understanding, and probably COVID also helped that, that, that we wouldn't have those experiences without tourism as well. Are you proud to live in Copenhagen? Am I proud to live in Copenhagen? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's usually something I would say when I meet people around the world. Yeah, and I feel good about that. Am I always going to live here? I don't know. I'm not sure, but I probably always will return. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely get the sense that people are proud of Copenhagen. Like, yeah. Generally speaking, there's, yeah. there's that really quiet, quiet pride. Yeah. That is, I, I've seen everywhere. Yes. Right? But the reason I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit to answer the question, because I also feel that pride can very quickly lean into arrogance. Yeah. And I think in Copenhagen, I think we are aware, but we also have to keenly remind ourselves that we're also privileged with the size of the city. It does make it more accessible to make some of the changes we've made. I lived in both Shanghai and Beijing for a while, and it's the challenge there and the scope and scale of challenge is very different from the scope and scale of, of challenge here. And so I, I think we do need to also remember that in our arrogance to be you know, just look at Copenhagen, you could do this as well. <laughs> and sometimes, yeah, you can take inspiration from it, but it's also very contextual for the kind of place that we are um, and, of course, the welfare of our society. The journey from living in China to international marketing mm -hmm. through to driving change within wonderful Copenhagen and, and pushing towards thinking about resident quality of life and, and localhood through to some of the work you do now is quite a, a big transition. What do you reflect on that? What, what is that? When you look backwards through that transition, how do, you, yeah. how do you think about it? Well, it feels like I followed the journey of tourism. Like, you know, also the topics that were discussed when I started in tourism, I felt everyone was discussing the Chinese market and how do we do better. And at the same time, I, always, I have always felt that um, 
my role, even in building up the Chinese market, was also to question sort of the, the way we approached it. At that time, it wasn't about sustainability, but it was about diversifying how we, for example, saw the Chinese audience. That was one of the, my main things there was to say, well, we can't talk about the Chinese. It doesn't exist as a, as a what do you say, a homogenous group. It's, a, it's so many markets within the market. It's so many different people and so and they're also developing and they and they just started traveling at that time to the you know to Europe <laughs> and so we were it was really developing so I think that like sense of something is shifting I need to follow the shifts more than I need to um, build the success on what's happening right now has always been at the core of what I did within tourism but then shifting now to you know, questioning whether we should continue to do long-haul marketing and all these things, there's a huge jump. But I'm happy I started somewhere else, so I have that background and I understand a little bit the dynamics of where we were at the time. Beyond your experience here in Copenhagen, you've got a really good perspective on other places around Europe and around the world. Are you seeing other people ask that question? Should we be marketing internationally? I do. I see that question coming up more and more that destinations, DMOs are questioning whether or not to do long haul marketing. It's not necessary. I think the discussion often goes into no, but we need to welcome everyone. And I think we need to bring that discussion down to it's not that you're closing your borders, but you're discussing how your resources are well spent. And we did, we work um, closely with City Destinations Alliance. We uh, support them in programming and moderating their two annual conferences. And we had one in Sofia where you were there as well as a speaker. Um, and we had one where I was polling the audience on, you know, we have about, I guess, between 100 and 120 uh, DMOs in the room. And so we were polling the audience and, and I asked them, how many of you have reoriented your marketing from long haul. And it was about half of the room, a little bit lower than 50%, I think 48% or 47% answered that they have reoriented their marketing efforts. So I think the number is bigger than we suspect. Yeah, those are the people who admitted to it quickly. Yes, exactly, yeah. So what's the pressure on destinations to be thinking strategically and reevaluating their markets? I think the pressure on destinations to reconsider and reevaluate the markets that they're working to attract is strongly based in sort of the push for sustainability. And I think it's also a, a pressure to put action behind words and figuring out where is it exactly that we can actually make an impact as a DMO. In the early days of sustainability, or, or what I saw was that sustainability was an add-on, right? So you'd continue doing all the different things that you were already doing, and then you'd sort of add a sustainability project manager or a sustainability strategy and integrate the word sustainable in whatever you were doing, but just basically continuing doing the same. You maybe even have like the sustainability guide to somewhere on your website alongside the top 10 things to do <laughs> or whatever. And I think now the pressure is intensifying from lip service basically to where can we actually make a real change and that now is starting also to reflect on oh, where do we change all the other tracks of how we're working and looking at your marketing not just in terms of your marketing messages but actually the markets that you're working on attracting is, a, is part of that. Then I think the other part of that is of course looking at emissions, that's becoming much more of an awareness among most, well, not just DMOs, just everyone. 
And so that's another thing, right? Are we working to attract the visitors that have the highest emissions, the highest footprint, or is it, you know, do we reorient to nearby travel? Again, COVID, I think, was a catalyst for a lot of this because nearby travel and staycation and all that became kind of a trend. But the awareness and the consciousness of your footprint is also really pushing on that. And the DMOs are reflecting on it. Focusing on increasing demand in closer markets to reduce the, the footprint of moving people around mm-hmm. is one sort of lever a DMO can pull that, that really goes directly to the type of work they do. Mm-hmm. What other things do you think that tourism boards in the cities they operate within can do? To, where, where do they have control? That's the main question for a lot of DMOs. Where do we actually have control? Because many DMOs are still measured on like number of bed nights or the volumes or quantity of whatever they're attracting or the money spent, which is um, at least a slightly better measure than the number of heads on beds. In essence, I think it's considering it across everything. Like how do we integrate it in everything that we're working on, whether you have efforts that relate to aviation, route development, crews, the messages that you put out, how you are lobbying for a change in your destination as well, and how you bring people together, who you're working with, the partnerships that you commit to, the events that you attract, the requirements that you set for the partners that you work with. I think there there are so many different levels of work that you can do if you really consider all the aspects of your work. I do think that that a lot of DMOs are doing this already. And then I think the, the hard part is deciding that, no, but this is the only way we're doing it. We're, we're only working with partners that uh, live up to these requirements or that are also working along the, towards the same goal as we are. What are your hopes for tourism in the future? It's really difficult to say what my hopes for tourism in the future is. I hope that tourism still exists in sort of the core essence of what tourism is, uh, understanding new places, different people, cultures, language, all these things, challenging yourself and your worldview. From a professional point of view, I hope that tourism starts taking itself seriously, I think, and start taking itself seriously in the way that also means seriously considering what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we can do better. And I think also admitting to the fact that there are negative impacts and we need to work on it. And it's okay to also admit that it's not an easy fix, but we do need to address the fix. What I come from is the DMO world, right? So I also know that world the best. In Europe especially, those DMOs are very often, if not completely, then semi-publicly funded. And with that also follows a responsibility to push some of these agendas much more aggressively forward and take themselves seriously in the responsibility that they could take on in that. And I understand that it's difficult, but I do think that's the role we need to play. What do you think is holding people back? I think so many different things are holding people back. I think politics sometimes, sometimes it's the difficulty of actually figuring out what's the right solution. 
sometimes change is just hard because <laughs> it will probably mean that you have to stop doing things and it's really easy to add stuff it's very difficult to take things away and so i think that's that's what's holding people back that we will need to change what we're doing today and it will probably need to look very very different in the future side story but a little bit the same so when i started in tourism i had like a very brief encounter with a with law like a big law firm i'm not a, a lawyer i didn't study law so i was in a different capacity i didn't like it very much <laughs> i personally didn't like sort of the atmosphere and the way of working and everything was always under the threat of doing something wrong because it could have like really serious consequences if you got just like a comma wrong in something and i didn't enjoy working under that pressure and then i discovered tourism and i was like oh here it's just about great stuff it's so positive no one dies it's just have a great holiday <laughs> and so i really enjoyed that in the beginning coming into tourism that it was such a positive agenda like what can we do to make that even better and i think now it's a little bit different right now we actually have to start talking about what is it that tourism doesn't do very well and and how do we how do we actually maximize that for better and i also think we have to widen the discussion so so well you and me we talk a lot about emissions and green transition and these things there's also a social piece that i'm quite preoccupied with how do we build on that and and it's interesting i'm so often in discussions about if we put taxes on tourism or on flights or whatever it can be then it, tourism will become very exclusive it will only be for the few tourism is very exclusive it is only for the few already if you're stuck in traffic you are traffic and most of the people who say that are already stuck in traffic they already they have the privilege of traveling it's such a small part of the world that actually goes on holiday like that So I, I do think that like awareness and that understanding that visiting a place, getting to travel, working in tourism and inviting tourism to places is a privilege. It needs to serve a bigger purpose for the societies that it invites tourism into. Yeah, I don't separate emissions or environmental footprint with the social aspects of sustainability because they're they're closely so connected yeah and the economic aspects as well they're, yeah. they're also interrelated do you think that the negative parts of tourism mm -hmm. in all those areas social economic environmental will be fixed before there's big disruption to the way tourism works i don't think tourism will manage to fix itself entirely before there is a big disruption that will change it for them I don't think so. I think part of it will improve. Things will be done in better ways. Some transitions will happen, but I don't think that it will get like to a place where it doesn't need that major disruption coming in from the outside. It's already happening. Like this summer with wildfires and droughts and all these it's that's major disruptions that are changing how we think about tourism. And how we think about tourism consumption of resources in places, how we think about the tourism flows and seasons, and so many things are coming up based on that major disruption. So I think the answer is really also that it's already happening. Which places do you think will best manage the 
transition or disruption? What types of places are best positioned? It's a difficult question. Maybe it's also because I live in the Nordics and someone told me the other day, well, you're comparing your insides to someone's outsides. And, I, and there's probably a little bit of that, that I'm more critical to some of the efforts being made in the Nordic region than I maybe am to some other regions. So I'm aware of that bias that I have. But I do feel that we're a little bit complacent. We're extremely comfortable. We are very comfortable. We are all in the Nordic region. We're, we're rich countries. We have a comfortable climate as well. We're probably uh, the ones that will get hit later on or less disruptively than, than what we're seeing in other places. I'm hoping the Nordic region will take that as a responsibility to then support the rest of the world with great solutions, run ahead, share what you find. I see that happening. But I think that some of the region's places that feel the pressure more intensively will also push for solutions more intensively. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is when we look back in five or 10 years, whether places that aren't dependent on long haul mm -hmm. have actually floated to the surface. Yeah, that's, that may be, that may happen. I don't know, but I think Somehow I also think it's the easiest thing to think that the, the places that are not dependent on long haul will, will sort of succeed in the longer term. Also because there are some places that I want to succeed that are dependent on long haul. You know, I have, I have those destinations in mind that I, I really want to succeed, but they depend on visitors flying in. And so I almost don't want to admit that probably that will be a success measure because we need those places to succeed. Well, let me, let me qualify that actually, because it's a good point. When I say dependent on long haul, I mean dependent on a lot of long haul, yeah. not the appropriate balance that has the right volume for the place mm. and whether the experience justifies paying for the true cost. Yeah. When we say dependence on long haul, we're also talking about a a specific kind of mindset that is also just dependence on quantity or if not dependence the habitual like this is how we create success so if you depend on long haul you need to find that balance in a different way how many is the right number of visitors to attract and and how do we do it so norway is starting a little bit to look at what's the co2 emissions per Norwegian kroner spent across different markets. Uh, it's still a very sort of market-based approach, but, but nonetheless, I think that's a really big step in starting to think about this differently. Uh, also because it questions like the easy conclusion of saying, we're not working to attract this and this, the Chinese market, for example. It, it nuances it in a different way. And I think we need to push that even further, that nuance of understanding what we do because I want some places to succeed that haven't necessarily lived off tourism in the same way that other countries have. What do you think of the conversations we're not having that we need to be having? What are we not talking about? What are we not talking about? Well, you and me are talking about everything. <laughs> From a DMO perspective, I'll stay within that world a little bit. I think we need to talk about what's the relevance of the DMO in this 
sphere, this moment of time that we're in, really? Like, what is your relevance as an organization? Why does it make sense that you're receiving these funds to, to work with tourism, to make this change? I'm not saying there isn't an answer that's good. I just think that we're not talking about it in a way that actually will push this forward. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about scope three emissions. We need to talk about crews in a different way than we have. And we need to talk about, I think we need to 10x DMOs. Like it's, we're not, it's not adding a different thing. It's not taking away something. It's 10xing the whole thing for it to make sense in the long term. Because if you're still focusing on marketing, you know, there are so many that do marketing a lot better than the DMOs do. And, and do you really need to do marketing anymore? What kind of, you know, I just think then you got to talk about how do we do marketing that adds a value to where we want to go. If you have like a cruise team, maybe your role isn't to talk up the benefits of cruise. Maybe your role is to make sure that we completely understand the exact impact of cruise and how we're balancing that out if possible. Maybe that's where we need to go. Yeah, I really, I really like that. What are some of the areas that you think DMOs can really step into? Because we've, we've got some resources that comes from tourism, right? Whether it comes top down or bottom up through a hotel tax, mm-hmm. you've got a little, a little cream off the top of the tourism sector mm-hmm. that's currently spent on marketing. Mm-hmm. I'm generalizing. Yeah. What sorts of areas are super exciting to think about DMOs stepping into? I'm excited to think about DMOs more as incubators or as pushing for real change and maybe also pushing for new models that will make that happen. That could also include funding. I'm excited about tourism taxes in a way that sounds very nerdy, but I am, and how we could redesign those. And I do think the DMO could benefit from going into that discussion more. DMOs are extremely knowledgeable. Like they have a very broad overview of tourism to their destinations. They're also very knowledgeable and typically very, very passionate about the destinations that they're representing. Combining those two, (laughs) I think, is exciting. Like, what can we do that combines the passion for your local hood, for your local community, for the destination that you're representing with the the in-depth understanding that most of them actually have of tourism? Stepping away from... uh, this strange lobby role that I see some DMOs taking on to more of a 10xing role. Tourism will come regardless, right? It's kind of a force, like it, it, it travels, funnily enough. So the DMOs are in a really unique position to be sort of the incubators, the facilitators of how do we change it? Like, what do we want to do with it? You're not going to close your borders, so what, what are our options within that? And being those like catalysts of innovation. Sometimes what frustrates me, I know I'm not like talking about what excites me, but what frustrates me about DMOs is that I see a lot of them, if it's not coming from them, they don't celebrate it. And they, they have to start celebrating innovations that happen. And they are the ones that can translate major innovations outside tourism into tourism because they understand it so well. A lot of the major innovators, like new solutions within, I don't know, agriculture, they don't see the opportunity to translate into tourism, but the DMO might, you know. So there's something there that I think they could step into much more. I I really like the words you use in terms of 10x and incubating. 
I've started thinking way too much at night about how much agency mm. communities have and how much soft influence tourism boards have. Mm -hmm. And I think that the future is going to be really complex mm -hmm. and really uncertain and constantly changing. And we've had this amazing period of stability that it seems like we're leaving behind. Yeah. And one day we're going to be managing wildfires and evacuating tourists. Mm -hmm. And the next day we're going to be trying to figure out how to save the tourism businesses that the economy currently depends on. Yeah. And we're going to th be thinking about diversifying beyond just seasonality and, and markets, but into different sectors. Yeah. Can the DMO use tourism wealth yes. to be the leader in the place? Yeah. I think that's that's a really good point. A lot of the DMOs are saying like it's not about tourism as a goal in itself, it's about tourism as a means. But what do they mean? Like I say it often because it makes sense to me. But I don't see a lot of DMOs actually using tourism as a means. <laughs> They're building the tool and, and then what, right? And I think if DMOs position themselves as the ones that understand how to also pool, like collect the wealth from tourism and reinvest, reorient into, it doesn't have to be, I'm not only talking about money, <laughs> you know, but reorient that into local communities, into green transition efforts. How powerful would that be? And tourism taxes, I do think is a key part of that because you could really create some funds out of that and then reinvest those into meaningful efforts. I almost want to go back to the question on what we need to talk about. I think we're Let's at... Let's do it again. Yeah. Okay. What are the conversations that we're not having that we need to talk about? I think some of the conversations that we're not having or that we're not, we're not understanding how to have is about the scope and scale of tourism and, and saying how much is good enough to serve the purpose we have? How much do we need to maximize the wealth that comes from it and that we can use in good ways? Tourism for good, as, as we're talking about, we're saying it a lot, but how much is needed for that? And having that very earnest conversation on regulation, on scaling down and saying no to things, like saying no to the growth that we don't want. <laughs> Maybe it's saying no to crews. Maybe it's saying no to long-haul marketing. It could be multiple different things, but those conversations we do need to have. So we like to talk about how we can make tourism a force for good. But, but I also, I think it was the CEO of Visit Flanders who said, you know, you can have such a thing as too much of a good thing or something like that. And I do think we need to talk about that too. And then again, we have to talk about we can't close borders. Like that's not really the world that we want to live in. So then what are our measures of, you know, what, what can we do to regulate this force that comes in? But then also what's the purpose of doing it, right? Because everyone has like a tourism vision. I'm m m very much part of that, but maybe that's not the right way to go. Maybe you don't have a vision for tourism. <laughs> if tourism, like someone asked me yesterday, we had an event where we were talking about like all the stuff that came out of our project and sort of building up competencies and understanding and inspiration for sustainable development of tourism. And at some point someone asked me, well, I just don't know, like, how do I approach all these tools or like, how do I use them? How do I sort of get started using them? And I was like, that's like asking, how do I, how do I get started using a hammer? Like, 
Well, either you have something you want to smash or you have something you want to build. But unless you are very clear on which of the two you're going for and whatever you're building, how would you want it to look like? And all these things, like you need that vision, but maybe that vision isn't for tourism. <laughs> maybe it's for something else and that's where you start and then you figure out how tourism contributes. Do you think Copenhagen can be an inspiration for other places? I think Copenhagen can be an inspiration for other places. But in theory, I think any place can be an inspiration for other places. I think Copenhagen is an inspiration already in terms of green solutions, biking infrastructure, architecture. In tourism, I think as well, there's been some great things coming out of Copenhagen. What I do feel is a skepticism from other parts of the world in terms of the, um, you know, the ease or how easy it is to make that change in a city like Copenhagen. So I think that inspiration has to come in really good ways. What inspires me from other destinations have been where I see destinations really going for open source, like sharing what works in a very open way. Helsinki has inspired me a lot on that. Building solutions, sharing what works, always having open source kind of as a principle. I really appreciate that as a development principle. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? To me, the responsibility I have is to be in conversations like this. I struggle a little bit with the fact that I'm talking about these topics and I still travel. That's, that's my dilemma. I try to make the best use I can of that, to have these conversations, to take tourism seriously and inspire where we need to go and bring up the, some of the topics that maybe needs to be brought up. I try to use the whatever platform I have to do that. Yeah. This might be a good one to, to finish on. In life, what are the things that bring you the most joy? Food. <laughs> it's an easy one. <laughs> no, seriously, it's food. Yeah, I think food and laughter. It's very simple and not that complicated. Or at least on those things. Those bring me the most joy. Professionally, what brings me the most joy is, is also laughter. <laughs> I like where it gets a little bit tough. You're a little bit anxious, and I guess that's why I like laughter, because that's typically a way of dealing a little bit with it, but also pushing through it, like staying with it. If we can laugh at it, but still push, then we're in a good place, and I, I enjoy that. This has been Travel Beyond, presented by Destination Think. And you just heard from Senior Jungersted, CEO and founding partner at Group Now in Copenhagen. We'll include links to more resources on the blog for this episode at destinationthink.com. My co-producer is Sarah Raymond Dubois. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Lindsay Payne and Annika Rautiola provided production support. You can help more people find this show by subscribing and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On Travel Beyond, we highlight destinations that are global leaders, and we're actively looking for the best examples of efforts to regenerate economies, communities, and ecosystems. So please do reach out if you have a story to share with us. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>